Well, good morning. I greet you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and uh, just thank you for wishing me happy birthday. I uh, asked Mary this morning what it felt like to be married to an older man. <laughs> That's the way this works. And there's glory in it. There is. Uh, you get to see how the Lord works in your life, in your family, in your marriage, in the people you love, your friends, in the colleagues with whom you share this kind of task, at the, the students who constantly come young and go out into the world to do the most amazing things. It takes a while to live long enough to see the glory of God in such things. I think there's something very biblical about this. You know, Abraham understood life a whole lot better and certainly understood the sovereignty and the providence of God much better as an older man. There's, a, another, there's another particular joy that comes. And I speak to students in particular as I say this, just Please receive this as gift and as explanation. And I say this not just on my own behalf, but on behalf of uh, faculty colleagues and those who serve here. You are the sign of God's promise. You are, uh, you are the assurance that God is calling out those who will serve his church and take the gospel to the ends of the earth and feed his flock for generations to come. Just understand how happy that has to make us. And I have to think such happy thoughts on my birthday while trying to avoid a birthday cake setting fire <laughs> to the building. All right. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. I also want to add my word of welcome to those who are here, uh, some here for the Boyce Preview Conference. Most will be coming uh, this afternoon, this evening, and to be here tomorrow. Some are already here. We're just very, very pleased and honored by that. And uh, as I'm with you today and have the opportunity and the stewardship of this message, I want to tell you that at this stage in my life, the Lord's faithfulness is so tangible. I find myself returning again and again to certain texts of Scripture that represent fundamental turning points in my life, foundational texts for my life, my understanding of reality, my commitment to Christian truth, my grounding in the Christian worldview. This is one of those texts. Uh, this text has consumed me and fascinated me from the time I was a teenager. Part of it was because of the fact that it was by this text, it was one of the first times as a young person I had to come face to face with some translation issues. You have the King James, you have the New American Standard, and you're looking at this text and all of a sudden you think, well, this, I've got to think about this. And partly because it was by this text, I learned something even as a teenager about the necessary interpretation of Scripture, understanding what it meant to 
to put a text within its context. But maybe the best way to do this is actually not to begin in Romans chapter 11, but to begin in Romans chapter 12. So let's look at the first two verses of Romans chapter 12. Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, this passage has been a theme passage for my life. It's one of those touchstone passages I go back to again and again and again, because even in the intellectual foment that I faced in the 1970s as a teenager, it made immediate sense that here you see a contrast between being conformed to the world and being transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, we're, we're going to come back to that, but that, that contradiction between the way of conforming and then the way of transformation, that's pretty fundamental. That, that, was, that was clarifying for me immediately. But then the, the means by which that takes place, by the transforming of your mind, it begins with a command. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Well, an appeal has to come from something, right? I mean, you just don't begin that. You don't begin a conversation by saying, hey, never met you before, but I'm making an appeal to you. Like this. This requires some context. This requires us to look back in the, in the King James, the therefore makes us look back. As Charles Spurgeon said, when you see therefore, ask what the therefore is there for. It's to make you look backwards in the text. Here it comes later in, in the passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brethren, therefore, right there. Fifth word in the ESV translation. Well, what explains the therefore? What's a therefore? It pushes us backwards to the very text that was our call to worship, beginning in Romans chapter 11. Now, this is proximate. So the context here is proximate. There's a larger context, which is the entirety of the book of Romans. We have to remind ourselves of the genre of this book, of this literature. It is a letter. It's an epistle. It's written to the church by the apostle Paul, by the inspiration of of the Holy Spirit, and it would have been read as a letter. All the therefores in Romans would have made immediate sense because they would have been in an unbroken chain. For the sake of time, today we're looking at Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. This presses us back. Therefore, well, what has to come before that therefore this makes sense? In one sense, all of Romans, the first 11 chapters, but in a particular sense, just understand that in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, Paul has been dealing with some of the most difficult but essential questions related to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, related to the, the understanding of Israel and the church, the understanding of God's sovereignty. 
He's dealt with Israel and its remnant in chapter 11. He's talked about the mystery whereby the Gentiles have been grafted on to the promises and thus, thus we're saved. Then he ends with this benediction or doxology, and it's, it's a transition in the letter, and it really begins not in the beginning of chapter 12, but at the end of chapter 11, beginning in verse 33. Paul makes very clear that all he's been talking about doesn't come from his own imagination. It doesn't come by his own wisdom. It is the wisdom of God. And, and that's the ultimate authority the Apostle Paul knows he's dealing with things that are deep and he knows he's dealing with things that are difficult. And it's very helpful that he doesn't say, this is the way I see it. He says, this is the wisdom of God. That's immediately clarifying. This is very, very, very helpful to us. When we're looking at scripture, we're not looking at what Isaiah thinks. We're not looking at the convictions of Moses. We're not looking at John's theory of Christology. We're not looking at the Apostle Paul's philosophy of life. In the Holy Scriptures, inerrant, infallible, inspired, we find the wisdom of God. And it's breathtaking. By definition, it's infinite. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of knowledge of God, of, of these riches and, and of the knowledge of God. How, how deep? How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways? I love that. I love that. You, we need the word inscrutable. We do. We, we in the English language need the word inscrutable and we don't use it enough. I think it more than I say it. Sometimes when I'm hearing people talk. I want to say, you know, that's interesting. What I really mean to say is that's inscrutable, which means I can't scrut that. I can't, I, I, I got a smile on my face and, uh, yep, that's interesting. If it is, if it is mysteriously, deeply, tantalizingly inscrutable, I sometimes say, that's fascinating. If we're in conversation and I say, that's fascinating, doesn't mean I'm fascinated. <laughs> it means I'm trying to find a polite way to say, that is complete gobbledygook. <laughs> or it just could be, I lack, the, uh, I lack the antenna to pick up on that transmission. There was a very famous cultic preacher in the United States during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. He preached from a temple. He was an African-American preacher by the name of Father Divine. He uh, was on the radio. I, I, re I realized that's uh, on my birthday, another way of signaling I'm very old. There once was a day when stuff had to come to you. Information had to come to you. Voices had to come to you. And you had to meet them at a specific time. Or you missed them. I would listen to Clear Channel Radio at night. 
Clear Channel Radio was set up as a part of the national defense system, so in the case of a nuclear attack, there would be a way for the government to speak to the people. There were these massive signals of AM radio at night, which meant you could be in South Florida where I was and you could hear a transmission from Chicago, New York, New Jersey, Portland, if the clouds were right. I heard Father Divine preaching one night and he said, here is the problem. Now, his theology was heretical, okay? But this point was correct. He said, the problem with too many preachers is that they try to scrute the unscrutable. They try to scrute the inscrutable. They, 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 they try to take a mystery and say, now I'm going to explain it. And you know, there's a truth in that. You know, if the Apostle Paul tells us this is a mystery, it's, it's, it's a revealed mystery to some extent. But we as finite human beings, we will never be comprehensively able to scrute the inscrutable. But notice how inscrutable his ways, which is to say God's ways are above our ways. God says that himself. He does not submit himself for our evaluation of his plans, of his ways. He's God and we are not. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has first given to him that he might be repaid? There are citations from the Old Testament. In other words, the Apostle Paul here, as a student of the Old Testament, is saying one of the constant testimonies of Scripture to God is his infinite wisdom and the infinite distinction between the creator and the creature when it comes to wisdom. Whatever wisdom the creature has is revealed wisdom. It, or, it, and that revelation, whatever wisdom that the creature has is, is, is a revealed wisdom from the creator, first of all, in making us in his image and implanting in us a certain knowledge that we cannot not know. That again, Romans chapter 1. And it's revealed knowledge for all things necessary for salvation and for faithfulness found in Holy Scripture. And then the comprehensive verse, this last verse, which is one of the most comprehensive doxological verses in all of Scripture, for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be glory forever, amen. For from him, through him, to him, all things. And all things are to his glory forever. Soli. Dei Gloria. Then the Apostle Paul says, Amen. And, and that's, of course, a statement that means agreement. It is also a state, statement that implies liturgy, even in the, the biblical literature. And, and so we understand that was doxology. That right there was doxology. This is, this is hymnic in its, in its simplicity. It is comprehensive in its clarity from him, through him, to him, all things and to him be glory forever. Amen. And all God's people said, Amen. But the letter's not over. This is, this is not the end of Romans. The Amen was not at the end. I can remember as a boy in church, I was perplexed by Amen when people stayed. And it was because the choir in our church at the end of the service sang a sevenfold Amen. Some of you are old enough to remember the sevenfold Amen. 
And that's when you knew the service was over, when the final low chord of the sevenfold amen was said. This is a little boy I discovered. There are a lot of almost amens. There is one amen that means this is done. But the letter goes on, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. I understand appeal. I understood it when I was a teenager. I, I understand that. I even understood the King James. I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. I, I beseech you. I felt besought. This is an appeal. In the Greco-Roman world, the rhetorical appeal is something that is so famous that throughout history, in, in millennia, some of these appeals have continued. Appeals for life under trial, appeals for truth. The Apostle Paul here is making an appeal, but he's not making an appeal from the Acropolis in Rome as if he's claiming worldly wisdom. He's not making an appeal in the courtroom at this point, although he will make other appeals from courtrooms, he's making an appeal here based upon the fact that from him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. So by the mercies of God. So that's a reminder to us, by the way, that everything we know, we know by mercy. There's a sense in which sometimes we say, well, this is this is." the doctrine of revelation. And over here is the doctrine of redemption. And it's, it's we who understand that in our finitude and in the, 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 the laying out of, of the scriptural witness, we make a distinction between the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of redemption. But the fact is that the redeeming God is the revealing God. It's God's mercy that we know anything. God's revelation, every single word of scripture is mercy. It's absolute mercy. We don't deserve the scripture. We don't deserve the Torah. We, we, we don't deserve the prophets. We, we do not deserve the wisdom literature. We don't deserve the gospels. We don't deserve the epistles. We don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve the fact that God made us in his image. We, do, we, don't, we don't deserve the fact that he implanted in us even what we describe as conscience, which is a knowledge which wasn't produced by some materialistic process, it is the gift of the Creator making us in His image. It's all mercy. And of course, in the background to this is what Paul has been talking about in this letter to the Romans, which is about the gospel. Paul making very clear, here is what the gospel is. Let's go back to Romans chapter 1. Verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It's this amazing passage. Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There's a lot behind that, therefore. 
All of revelation is behind that, therefore. All of redemption and the saving covenant purposes of God are behind that, therefore. On the basis of that truth, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Paul calls Christians to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's so much we could unpack there, but it's just important that we recognize how comprehensive this is intended to be. It's, it's, it's all that we are. Uh, body, yes. But in this context, this means all of us, and, and especially in a context in which bodies could be taken and put to war. No, bodies can be imprisoned. Bodies can be worshipped, as is the case in paganism. Plenty of that in Greek and Roman culture as well. The point is, Paul says, God owns us all. He made us. He's our creator. He owns us. We're to present back to our creator our bodies as a living sacrifice. And, you know, without spending too much time here, you recognize that in any language into which you try to translate this, it is an oxymoron. The, the, the picture is so counterintuitive that it arrests us because we understand sacrifices. And if anyone would understand sacrifices, it's the Jewish people included in the fact that salvation has come to both Jews and Gentiles. And even the Gentiles would understand the sacrificial system because they'd see it all around them, some pagan, most importantly Jewish in the background here. But the one thing you know about a sacrifice is it, it didn't get up and leave the altar. You know, we do. It's an amazing thing. We're, we're dead and yet alive. We're, we're, the Apostle Paul will say, we're dead to self and alive to Christ. We are, <laughs> we're purchased by his blood. We were made by him in the beginning. We belong to him. And the rightful response of the Christian believers to understand that we are living sacrifices, defined by being holy and acceptable to God. Language you immediately understand from the Old Testament about the, the animal to be sacrificed without spot and without blemish and the, the sacrifice itself to be honorable and the point being it must be acceptable to God. Acceptable discipleship is thus the picture of a living sacrifice, as shocking as that is. But then the end of verse 1, which is your spiritual worship and in the King James, your reasonable service. Uh, and to be honest, I understood reasonable service better than spiritual worship. The, the translation here is, is very accurate without, again, diving into the background there. It is a spiritual worship. It, it, it is our offering to God. It is our rightful response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the sovereignty of God, the wisdom of God, which is deeper than we can know, the ways of God which are unsearchable, his judgments inscrutable, our rightful spiritual worship, the one who made us, the one who is all wisdom, the one who redeemed us by the blood of the lamb, is a spiritual worship, our rightful response, our discipleship, our obedience is the spiritual worship. You notice that Paul does not create any kind of Gnostic uh, caste system here. Th th this is not 
an assignment or a command given to some Christians. This is, this is normative. So th this defines the Christian life. That also was very helpful to me in understanding this text. So it, it's not that the, 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 the wisdom of God and the glory of God and the, and, and the reign of Christ in the church is to be demonstrated by the fact that there are some Christians who fulfill this. The Apostle Paul doesn't even speak as if this is just the leadership of the church. You know, the church leaders, they need to live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is their spiritual worship. He doesn't say there. He says your. This is normative Christianity. This is normative Christian discipleship. This is what Christian faithfulness looks like in this world, in this age. All Christians, everywhere. That doesn't mean there aren't different responsibilities and capacities and gifts given. It doesn't mean that in the congregation there aren't those who, in a particular way, in a particular dimension of life, don't bring special gifts and special callings and special labors. Of course, it does mean that. But it, it means that every single Christian, normative, comprehensive, every single Christian is as spiritual worship, to present our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And then the next verse is also addressed not just to some Christians, but to all Christians. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I'm going to work backwards here for a moment. Some of the worst sermons I've ever heard in my life. Some of the greatest spiritual trauma ever brought into my life. Some of the most well-intended but ill-resulting words I ever heard from Christians in my life had to do with the will of God. I'm 16, 17, 18 years old. I'm a believer, I desperately want to know the will of God for my life. I, I, I want to do what God wants me to do. I pray, I read the scriptures, I'm deeply involved in the life of the church. Back then we had discipleship groups. I am deeply involved in discipleship groups. Um, a life as saturated as a teenage life could be in the life of the church, in a Christian home. I was really traumatized by this. Because everybody talked about finding the will of God. And so I, I wanted to find it. How am I supposed to know when I found it? I'm interested in too many things. I mean, there weren't many professions that didn't look interesting to me. I do them all. Can't do them all. So what's the will of God? Well, how am I supposed to find out? Do I, do I go to the pastor and ask him? I did. More on that in a moment. It's good. It's good. Faithful, godly pastor. It was good. But, uh, and my youth pastor, who was a sweet, God-honoring young man, emphasis on young it's, uh, it was simply true, I think, 
that he didn't have to know much. He just had to know more than we did. <laughs> On a weekly basis, he, he would spend the week knowing a week's more than we did. And in Christian faithfulness, God honored that. He was learning fast. He was pulling us with him. How do you know the will of God? It was, it was confusing. You know, it, it seems like a mystery and, or, or a secret treasure I'm trying to find. Or, or it's, it's counterintuitive in the sense that if you want to do it, that's not God's will. Too many Christian narratives are about the fact that, you know, God's will is something you won't like. I didn't have a comprehensive understanding. I, I don't claim a comprehensive understanding now, but I hope I have a much more mature understanding of the fact that God in his sovereignty, he, he will make us want what he wants us to want. He will bring to our awareness his will in our lives because of when we're born and where we're born, to whom we're born, where we live, how all of this chain of faithfulness unfolds link by link, how the walk progresses step by step. And, and then also the things that he gives us in our hearts is a desire. The apostle Paul will say it's a, it's a good thing for a young man to want or to esteem or to seek even the teaching office in the church. Certainly not a bad thing. It's a good thing. There are other issues to this, and even in terms of calling to ministry. This is what the reformers understood was so important, as Martin Luther would say, the milkmaid is just as called as the monk. I think he meant more called, actually. That's a revolutionary thought. It's deeply biblical. The Apostle Paul would understand it. What is good and acceptable and perfect, the will of God, which we discern, or the King James says, prove. So these first two verses of Romans chapter 12 begin with, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And it ends with that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what's in the middle is this language, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay, so those words could be the theme verse for this institution. For any institution that would seek to educate in the things of Christ, for the church of Christ, to the glory of Christ. It's a, it's a duality here. It's a, it's, it's a twofold movement. It's a do and do not. And as is so often the case in Scripture, and by the way, as is so often the case in teaching, and by the way, as it is so often the case in parenting, you begin with don't do that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I just want to say flatly, one of these things is going to happen. It is. I mean, it's just, it, just because of the way we are made in God's image and the way we are as sinners in a fallen world, one of these things will happen. We will either be transformed by the renewing of our mind as defined here in Scripture, or we will be conformed to the world. And I want to tell you, it's a lot easier to see now. It's a lot easier to see now. It's a lot more urgent to see now than it might have been at some other moments 
even in recent Western history. As you look at the history of, say, just Western civilization, I can't take responsibility for the whole globe at this moment. Let me just talk about the, the flow of thought and the development of the mind in the West as we know it. In Western civilization, it is not accidentally often referred to historically as Christendom. We've had so many guests on the campus this week, and a man came up to me because he likes reading, he likes talking about reading, and uh, he likes the book list that I often recommend and pays attention when I make references to books. And he came up to see and, and said, uh, have you ever read William Manchester's A World Lit Only by Fire? I was glad to say, yeah, I read it. And I said, it, it has... As William Manchester, the writer, is, is, is capable of, it has, it has one of the most amazing statements in the beginning of the book. And it's one of those statements that you read it. I can still remember getting the book, A, a World Lit Only by Fire. And it, it, it's, his, it's his world of medieval Europe. And, and he begins by, by telling a story. And I, I don't remember right now if it's the first paragraph, but as I remember in my mind, having read it, I don't know how many decades ago, I think it's in the first paragraph when he says, to understand Europe in the medieval ages is to understand it was dark in ways that you can't imagine. It was dark mostly because of trees. He said Europe was so forested that a squirrel could climb up in a tree in Moscow and climb down to the ground in Paris. That's the kind of sentence you remember. That's a very well-traveled squirrel. climb up a tree in Moscow and climb down the tree in Paris because it was so forested. That's not the main point. <laughs> but I'll tell you, that that's a point that stuck with me. But he makes very clear, and he's not writing as a Christian apologist, not at all, but he makes very clear, he said, the one thing that was not found for a thousand years was a basic disagreement over morality for a thousand years. He points out that the Christian church had so much influence on the society that the definition of the most fundamental issues of society, ontology, what is real, metaphysics, how to, how to understand even the, the physical world, how it, how it testifies to that which is beyond it, morality, Marriage, as he said, for, for a thousand years, there just wasn't even the knowledge of any alternative understanding. Like the squirrel climbing up the tree in Moscow and down the tree in Paris, most people living for a thousand years in Europe really had no clue that there was anyone in the world who thought about anything in a fundamentally different way than they did. We don't live in that world. The squirrel can no longer climb up a tree in Moscow and down a tree in Paris. And we don't live in a world in which there's not a constant awareness that there are people who think differently. 
Not only that, but in the course of, say, just the last century, and even in an accelerated way, in just the last few decades, the prevailing worldview, the prevailing way of thinking, the prevailing understanding of the most basic and fundamental questions of life, ethics, reality, they've been reshaped. Now, as you understand Romans, and you remember this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, to the church in Rome, to live in Rome... To preach the gospel in Rome, to be a Christian in Rome, was to understand necessarily that there were people who thought fundamentally in different terms, who we would now speak of operating from a fundamentally different worldview. The Romans, both Jews and Greeks, had to understand that. We must understand it now. You've heard this text, you know this text. You no doubt understand the fact that the default for human beings, one way or the other, is to be conformed to one vain philosophy or another. Mostly be conformed to whatever is the prevailing view. You want some contemporary evidence of this? The issue of same-sex marriage, as it is called. Between the years... 2012 and 2017, comprehensive polling in the United States shows that in about 2012, 70% of Americans said that same-sex marriage should not be legalized. 2017, so it's not just one survey, it's, it's a comprehensive body. And the numbers are pretty steady. The numbers had flipped. 30% of Americans said there should not be same-sex marriage, and 70% of Americans said there should be same-sex marriage. Now, we don't do morality, we don't do marriage by polls, but that's pretty shocking. It shocked the major organizations doing the research, like the Pew Research Center and the National Opinion Research Center, University of Chicago. And, and, and let me tell you why it shocked them. It is because the way those surveys work, they work longitudinally. They, they work over time on the basis of the same population, the same population sample. Now, of course, people die, new people have to come in. They age the sample. But here's the point. A lot of the people who said no to same-sex marriage in 2012 but said yes to same-sex marriage in 2017, the researchers had to put as a major issue, those are the same people. This isn't a random sample just taken over time. This is following the shape of public opinion in specific groups and identifiable people. And so it's one thing if you say, you know, we took a sampling in 2012 and here was one position. We took a sampling five years later in 2017. It's another position. No, these, these are many of the same people. How, how do you change from one position on that issue to the other in five years such that you're just ready to tell a pollster or a survey taker, here's what I believe. It is because the, the omniculture around us, the, the omni-mind around us, the prevailing worldview around us is so powerful that if we are not living sacrifices, we will be 
inevitably conformed to this world. I think we recognize the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in this season is in deadly danger of simply being co-opted. You can drive on streets very close here. You can see beautiful church buildings with rainbow banners out front. It's really, really disappointing. It's, it's truly heartbreaking. But the heartbreak is increased when you understand that in almost all of those churches, at some point the gospel was preached. In some cases, the gospel was preached Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, year after year, until it wasn't. And, and when it's not, here's what happens. <laughs> you get conformed real fast. That's how you get from 2012 to 2017. The question is, what, what break is there on our absolute conformity to whatever is declared to be the prevailing moral judgment of the age, of the omnimind, what, what, uh, of the mass culture, particularly the way culture works in terms of the elites? What, what, what in the world would prevent that? I want to tell you, the only preventative to being conformed to the world is being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the danger in that is that Christians will look at that and say, well, okay, that means I need to improve my mind. You do need to improve your mind. But please don't go to a mind improvement program. Because this is not the autonomous mind of the autonomous human being. Paul's writing to Christians. Paul's writing to the blood-bought church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is writing to those who are commanded to be living sacrifices. And this means the renewing of the mind is by the Holy Spirit on the basis of Scripture. It is the miracle that is brought within us, wrought within us by the preaching of the Word of God, by the ordinary means of grace, by the study of Scripture, and yes, by Christian higher education, and yes, by theological education. This institution exists. Boyce College exists. Southern Seminary exists in order unapologetically to push back against conformity to the age and to seek to declare and to teach Christian truth in such a way that in those who study in this school, there will be the transformation of the mind, the renewal of the mind being transformed such that a generation will go out into the church to preach the word and go out into the world to live faithfully in such a way that transformed, renewed minds, not conformed to the world, go out as living sacrifices to show the wisdom of God. If that doesn't fire you up, faculty, what would? And I know you, and it does, and I love it. If that doesn't fire you up, students, then what would? But I know it does, because it drew you here, and I see your joy, and I love it. And who wouldn't want in the service of Christ, in the service of the church, to do this until we can do it no more? I would. This faculty does. And I believe you do. And you're going to make certain it's perpetuated long after you leave this campus. This is an ongoing task. It isn't over when we graduate, it's only over when we're glorified.
Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in your word and in this text. Father, may we live this out in faithfulness as living sacrifices, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of the mind to your everlasting glory. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.